to the 166th episode of Reverse Rep Radio. I'm Andy Ryan. And I'm Toby Chad. Happy 70th birthday to Graham Gooch. Gooch began his test career with a pair, but finished it with 8,900 runs. Welcome to the podcast that salutes both Gooch and his wonderful Tash. So, um, I think I have hit middle age. And the reason why I think I've hit middle age is because the two great controversies in cricket at the moment, the first one of which is the um, Johnny Bairstow stumping in the second test and the latest of which is the rain in the test we're recording on the on the fifth day this is the beginning of the fifth day of the um, old trafford test which everyone seems to have been getting very very riled up about and i reckon my younger self 10 years ago would have been getting very riled up about both of these things and now i sort of shrug my shoulders and think i can see the truth in both ways of the stumping and when it comes to the rain that's just cricket and that's just the way that it works out um what are your ta- what broadly speaking without delving into these too much do you share a sort of similar uh level-headedness you, be, towards uh, this or are you there no thinking that the rain really is has has destroyed <laughs> england and we're hard done by with this you'd be no good on twitter toby no i know i wouldn't well this is the thing everything. this is the thing um, I did see someone suggesting on Twitter that obviously the correct thing in accordance with the spirit of cricket would be for Australia to concede the match, right. recognising that obviously England morally deserve the victory um, and the weather has nothing to do with it. No, I, I can't I can't really see. I mean, getting angry at, um, at the weather feels like the sort of height of, you know, shaking your fist at clouds does not feel like a very, very rational. No, it's King, King Canute um, in, and other guys. Um, yes, so no, not 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 getting too angry about that, but I'm sure by the time our listeners are listening in, England will either have beaten the weather, beaten the weather, I suppose they will have beaten we the weather beaten and the, the Australians, weather, exactly. or, they, or they wouldn't have. Um, I think for the sake of everything, it'd be nice if there's a, you know, a lot riding on the oval, but... Um, it really would, it really would, too, all, that's what we're hoping for. Well, it's we're now 23 minutes into that day's play, if indeed there is going to be any any play. So, um, what are we talking about this episode of Reverse Threat Radio? You have, you have been to the Ashes. I have not been to the Ashes. I've just been watching it under the bed covers. But we're going to hear your report from um, from Lords. We're going to be talking about um, Ted Allotson. And I must confess, Ted Allotson is a name that I have n- never heard before. So <clears throat> you're going to be telling us about and why we should all have heard of him. I will never forget it after today. I will never, he- I will never forget, dear Ted. Um, and we're going to be reviewing um, Stumped, the play Stumped, that we were um, very lucky to be able to see together in person just a couple of weeks ago um so english summer ashes summer you went to lords how was it so i arrived in steady drizzle and the forecast was grim in fact at one stage it really looked like was there going to be any play at all but you know thanks to the eccentricity of the english weather and to be fair the the fine work of the ground staff we not only started on time but got a full day day's play um, I won't go through this blow by blow because you know we've we've moved on in the ashes and you can listen to other podcasts for for ball by ball analysis. But this was the day on which England got themselves into a good position before having a bit of a flap against the mm. short ball. Um, the the day was a complete joy, but it did leave me thinking a little about Lords. The atmosphere was, as it usually is at Lords, reserved, very tame compared to the roars of Edgbaston and Headingley. Um, and it somehow wasn't very Basball. Um, mm. And I love the hum of Lords. Uh, I, I, I sort of think it's it's a kind of unique feature of it. But I did wonder um, if it didn't quite match the scale of the occasion or did it quite give England, particularly this sort of high octane England, the support they rely on. 
But the other side, I guess, to this is I have a, a, a good friend from work who went on the fifth day, uh, mm. day of the infamous, um, well, depending on your view, infamous or, or rather routine stumping of Johnny Bairstow. And he was actually very negative about the way the atmosphere turned in the ground that day. And it, and it did leave me wondering, perhaps, you know, be careful what you wish for and uh, let's just take Lord's um, hum and all. So do you, so do you think that there really is I mean obviously you do because it's what you're saying but there really is a demonstrable difference between Lords and say Edge Baston in terms of the sort of rowdiness of the of the crowd because that wouldn't I have to say been something that I would have necessarily observed from you know the times that I've been and I wonder how much that was due to the play on the day and the fact that it was a you know England were a bit under the cosh and um, mm. The thing, the thing I guess to bear in mind is that grounds like Edgbaston Headingley actively encourage, um, or maybe they would dislike this phrase. I would say they actively encourage that sort of party stand. You know, the, yes. the, Edgbaston has the Hollies, yes. Headington, Headingley has the Western Terrace, and the idea is you go there, you drink a lot, you make a, a hell of a lot of noise. Lords. There is just the does not equivalent. encourage that. Yeah. No, yeah. and I mean, Lords quite actively, for example, fancy dresses banned at Lords. If you try and start a beer snake at Lords, the stewards will be on you in seconds. Straight away, if you yeah. start unfaithful. It, yep. It's just not. So I think it is quite. I think there's also, and going down a sort of um, socioeconomic rabbit hole that I'm probably not well trained enough to do, I think there yes. is also a basic reality that Lords is the most expensive of the test grounds. And that does do something for atmosphere in reality. I mean, you're likely to get... It doesn't stop people crowd. misbehaving, though. No, well, and, I, and I, well, yes, and I, 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 you, well, I can come to a story on that in a moment, actually. But there was, the crowd was, I think at Lords is likely to be older. It's likely to be more middle-aged, yep. um, middle-class, perhaps. And that maybe has its impact on the atmosphere. On the subject of misbehaving, I did see a man, an Australian fan of a certain age at the end of the day, very much the worse for wear for booze being helped by friends. And I did think, you know, it's, to, have, to have gone at it that hard um, was, well, depending on your point of view, was sort of admirable or, or, or slightly concerning. Um, well, that's, sort of that's, just, that's just Australians for you. Now you know what yeah. to deal with, well, deal with on a, on a, on a day-to-day you can basis. Deal, you, you, you can deal with the, uh, the, the negative letters we get in response to that <laughs> gross national stereotyping. But yes, yeah, sorry, sorry, that was a very long answer to your original question, which mm. is, I think it is a slightly different atmosphere, but it does sound like, for those who are there, and I'm, I'm not even going to get into what was going on in the long room, but that things did turn a bit on that, well, that fifth was, day. That, was, that um, was something, wasn't it? Yeah, and yeah. a kind of re- remarkable hypocrisy that came out of that as well. But anyway, we're mm-hmm. not going to we're not going to delve into the um, we're not going to delve into the spirit of cricket today. No, we'll we'll, we'll leave the spirit of cricket and we'll go to, uh, to <coughs> we'll go to short leg instead. Mm. Yeah, so I'm sure that everyone has seen. I'm sure you've seen mm-hmm. Abdullah Shafiq's mm-hmm. remarkable catch at short leg against. Um, in the test against um, Sri Lanka a few a few days ago, um, <coughs> excuse me, um, which has been you know immediately hailed as the greatest short leg catch of, of of all time. For those who haven't seen it, I suppose the context is interesting, which is that in the first innings of that game, Shafiq had taken a kind of traditional straightforward short leg catch, the kind of catch that you're there for, the inside edge onto the pad, ballooning up, you know, fairly simple catch. And often we see short leg either taking those kinds of catches or getting the hell out of the way when, you know, the off spinner decides they're going to bowl a bowl a long hop and they're taking evasive action as soon as as soon as possible. Um the one in the second innings was was 
difference. The batsman was, you know, advancing with intent down the wicket to an off-break, Salman's off-break. Um, and Shafiq followed him, which was kind of remarkable in and of itself because it looked like it was going to be a very attacking shot and most short legs would have probably got out of the way by that point or certainly not have put themselves in, in harm's way. But followed him down the wicket, which meant that his momentum was going to his left, down back towards the bowler. The ball came off the face of the bat so quickly to his right and a long way to his right. And so he has to make an enormous kind of adjustment to his momentum to turn right and then manages to kind of pouch it by his by his just by his fingers. Um it's it, it it is amazing to watch and I suppose that the thing that's really struck me about this is that in an age of both 2020 and in an age of, you know, sort of short form highlights going viral on the internet quickly we have absolutely no shortage of astonishing things happening you know the boundary catches you get hundreds of boundary catches that seem to come out every you know every ipl um and we watch them and we think how did that happen but it's very rare that you have one that you go back to time and time and time again and kind of go how on earth did that actually how on earth is that possible? How on earth did someone actually achieve that? And I, I mean, one of the only equivalents that I can actually think of is the worn ball of the mm-hmm. century for something that has that kind of watchability time and time and again and kind of sets a new benchmark for what is possible on a on a cricket pitch as well. So I do think that that catch, for all it's already been kind of fated, I think that that, that catch, you know, deserves to be seen as a particularly remarkable one. You had to watch it in real time as well, didn't you? Because mm. they had the slow-mo replays, but it was the real time that made it so absurd. I think your point about comparing to the boundary catches is really interesting because you know when you first saw, saw those a few years ago and people would do these flicks and keep it, mm. you thought it was remarkable. And honestly, it's become slightly wrong now, now. It totally has, and I'm sure that yeah. teams actually train for it. Well, I mean. fielders, And what I wonder is, do you eventually get some sort of evolution with what we expect of a short leg? I mean, I think generally... Now, if you see a short leg ducking, as you said, when mm. a batsman's advancing like that, if you're a fan or a commentator, y- y- you expect the short leg to do that, right? Like, protect yes, exactly. Themselves. exactly. Do, I mean, do you think this actually starts to change our expectations of the short well, leg? We expect- possibly. Maybe short legs around the world are kind of cursing Abdullah Shafiq yeah. at this point because now there is this thing. You know, it's usually it's like the, the person in their second or third test or on debut and they're stuck there for a little while under the helmet and you're basically cannon fodder but this shows actually that it can be something you know completely different to field in that in that in that position a particular favorite of mine is the short leg to the um part-time spinner which i think if i'm right we've seen quite recently in the ashes with travis head and i think god do i want to put my uh safety in the hands of someone who it's cruel <laughs> who, yes, who for whom spinning is sort of you know more of a hobby than a than their 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 raison d'être. From the archives, and in this episode of Reverse Match Radio, Andy is going to be taking us back 112 years to Ted Allison's defining moment. It's the 20th of May, 1911, and Sussex are playing Nottinghamshire at Hove in the county championship. So when the 26-year-old Ted Allitson came out to bat in the second innings, Nottinghamshire were nine ahead, but had seven wickets down. There was no reason for the crowd to expect anything other than a prompt finish. The former coal miner Allitson had an average of 17 and was a fringe player selected only due to an injury to a first-team regular. 
He did pretty well, though. He reached a creditable 47 by lunch, but Knotts was still very much heading to defeat. 84 ahead, now 9 down. Now we get to our turning point in the dining room at Hove, where Allitson talks with his captain, Arthur Jones, reportedly. Allitson says, Mr Jones, does it matter what I do? Jones, no, Allitson, I don't think it does matter what you do. Allitson, oh, then I'm not half going to give Tim Killick some stick. So, play restarts at 2.15 and Allitson's out by 2.55. But in those 40 minutes, he scored 142 <laughs> runs. And poor old spinner Tim Killick certainly did get some stick. He went for 77 off four overs, including 34 off one of them, which was the first class record until Sobers finally broke it 57 years later. I mean, the stats about Alexson's hitting are multiple, but he struck eight sixes and 23 fours. The vast majority straight down the ground, and five balls were dispatched out of the ground at home and onto the roof of a nearby skating ring. It's, so, interesting. You know, <laughs> it's interesting that we've got that um, description of that uh, conversation with his, uh, with his captain, that very matter-of-fact uh, conversation with his captain in the dressing room before he goes out after after lunch do we know what the motive was for this because it see it seems like you know this is like hitting of the most rampaging style which you know it's it's one thing when you're kind of thinking oh i've just got a bit of a license because we're going to lose this game anyway so i might as well have a bit of fun but i see i don't know it just seems like to go to go out and and execute this level of of hitting you have to have some real fire in your belly somehow it's very strange we've got no we've got no record of why why he um or at least i haven't picked up the record of why he particularly had it in for tim killick although everyone else went went around the park as well i think the more you look at this innings the more it becomes clear that this was a sort of a stars aligning mm. situation you know as we'll get to allison's career beforehand or after didn't really touch these heights but something about that day, and I guess something about that loss of pressure and that willingness of his captain just to say, you know, go out and go out and swing. Um, I wonder if perhaps maybe Sussex slightly lost their heads as well. You you think, you know, was there something they could have done bowling wise to sort of rein this in? Um, it also just just picking up on 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 one detail. It certainly, you know, you think. 1911 pre first world war but then the um detail about him being a former coal miner is a nice kind of piece of sort of color to this story isn't mm. it in the sense of someone who would you know god knows what you went through as a coal miner in those um in those days and then here you are out in the cricket pitch and it always reminds me you know of the old um keith miller you know what's mm. pressure when you've had a messerschmitt up your ass but I, I i think it adds an interesting kind of perspective when you think of someone who would have had, you know, a career as something like a coal miner and then suddenly here they are out in the middle batting. Yeah, it is interesting, isn't it? This idea that players in that era who had had a different profession, it must necessarily put sport into perspective in mm. a way that probably is harder if you've been a sort of, you know, academy graduate. Uh, yeah, exactly. And it's all you've ever it's all you've ever done. Um and I wonder, I mean, also this fact that he was a fringe player, maybe there was inevitably in that situation, there's always that pressure to impress and try yeah. and force yourself up the reckoning. So how, um, did it, how did it end? How did the innings end? 
So unsurprisingly, given the heavy hitting, he was caught on the boundary, although an interesting detail suggests he may not actually have been out as the catcher was reportedly touching the stand when he took the catch. So I think, assuming, I assume the rules would have been the same in 1911, that that would therefore have been a six. Um, Alexson, however, apparently was not too bothered about this. He was keen to get off at this stage to give Nottinghamshire the chance to chase an improbable victory. In the end, nobody won. Sussex would finish on 213 for eight, so coming up 24 runs short. But from where Nottingham had been, a pretty respectable result. So this was obviously a time when, when um, innings were measured in time rather than overs. But do, do we have a sense of the 142 that he scored in those 40 minutes after lunch? How many balls those came off? Because the, the other thing to remember is that you think of that in an age of T20 and that's remarkable and this was been a bat that was probably you know a quarter of the thickness of what mm. someone might might use now yes well th- th- this is a really good point i mean you're, you're dealing with a much much smaller bat in an era where obviously this isn't a 2020 there are no fielding restrictions we assume that sussex had people out on the boundary uncovered pitches um, so the ball wasn't bouncing as true as you might expect you know all of that yeah no for all, all those challenges and i think we don't have it's an interesting feature, isn't it? For, for for games of, you know, whatever happened last week in the Ashes, we have a definitive version of the truth. Mm. We don't have that for this innings. Um, and for that, if you wish, we could blame the scorers. The Sussex scorers recorded the runs, but not the bowling figures. And apparently that right. was an odd decision even at the time. Apparently you generally would record the bowling figures. Um, the Nottinghamshire scorer did, but made several mistakes. Um, So our understanding of the innings actually owes a lot to John Arlott, who wrote an entire book about it titled Allotson's Innings. Um, And he and the statistician Roy Webber tried to painstakingly reconstruct the innings ball by ball. I'm not entirely sure how one does this. I mean, you can sort of, because ultimately you are pretty at the mercy of the scorecards, Mm. aren't you? But I guess what you have to do is, you know, if a single's been taken here, so-and-so's on strike, and and you do your best. But I, I, I doubt you can ever get to, I can't see how you can ever get to a version that is definitive it does remind me a bit and i can't actually remember what the innings was but there's another innings that we've talked about on the on the podcast that was of a similar kind of strike rate um and there's a wonderful description of the scorers just kind of totally losing it in terms of trying to keep up with what's happening out on the out on the pitch and you kind of have to have a bit of pity for the scorers in this (laughs) in this situation you know you'd run out of room on your scorebook against the um uh, you know, against the against the batsman and trying to add up all those fours and sixes is going to kind of challenge anyone, really. I, I think there is a suggestion that that may have been quite quite literally what happened. The scorers yeah. were slightly overwhelmed by what was what was happening. Um, I should actually take a moment to credit um, both the old Ebor blog, which I've used before mm. previously for help our research and was brilliant on on this, and also Trent Bridge uh, is their own website. They clearly still see Ted Allison as a bit of a hero at Nottinghamshire and had a very nice account uh, of the innings. So, what next for Ted Allison? Well, the Duke of Portland gave him a cheque for £100 and a gold watch. Allison's father gave him a ham. You know, what, what, what more could one want? <laughs> Here you go, lad. Journalists who understandably hadn't really been at Hove um, in numbers did turn up in their droves for Allison's next game and saw him make 60 against Gloucestershire. And this earned him a place in the test trial match between a Gilbert Jessup 11 and a Pelham Warner 11. Allison made 15 and 8, so there was to be no fairy tale rise to the England team. 
he would play three more seasons for Notts, um, and he never made another hundred. Mm. There was there was some um, there was the odd example of sort of heavy hitting, but but never another hundred. Um, his county career then came to an end as he served in the First World War, and he returned afterwards. Um, to working uh, in the mines um, not entirely sure from the accounts whether that was as a miner again or in, or in some sort of other role in, in, in the colliery um, and as you noted earlier I think what's extraordinary is that even in the era of 2020 and Basball and uh, bigger bats and fielding restrictions Allison's effort remains astonishing and perhaps perhaps particularly astonishing for a number nine who never made another hundred well that's the thing the fact that it was a one-off you know sometimes these innings are astonishing because suddenly it's the moment at which this player suddenly clicks and the career takes off from there and then mm. you know the rest is the rest is history but for this to be a one-off innings of someone who never does it again as you say it actually makes it i think much more a remarkable feat and very interesting for you as the individual, isn't it? You know, you're, you you must take a huge amount of pride, I'm sure, in Ted Allison in what he did. But there must always then be that nagging thing of, why don't I do this more often? Mm. Um, you know, you've shown that you can. Um, but then I think anyone who watches any sort of large quantity of sport realises that, you know, consistency and brilliance aren't always, you know, bedfellows. There are some people who can pull these things off and, you know, they are sort of wonderful freak events. I've often said that of my own performances, consistency and brilliance are not not natural bedfellows. to the review and for this episode we've reviewed our first play we went and saw stumped at the Hampstead theatre um, it was first released in 2022 and it's written by the playwright Shomit Dutter who is a writer and classics teacher who plays cricket and crucially for this play has captained Gaiety's cricket club uh, which was Harold Pinter's team uh, a summary of the play doesn't really <laughs> quite do it justice, but in short, Beckett and Pinter play together for Gaiety's CC and then attempt to find their way home to London. Now, Toby, this was this was quite an achievement. Um, we managed to make the not inconsiderable admin of uh, children, your busy return to the UK work, and we, we found a, a wonderful mm. evening to go to the theatre together. You are a cricket lover and an English literature graduate, this should have been perfect for you, was it? I really enjoyed it. I didn't know what to expect. And it's been, I have to say, a little while because of some of the aforementioned reasons, which I think we share in terms of um, time poverty, that we we don't kind of gamble on going to things very often. And so often when I'll go and see a play, it'll be a known quantity. Whereas for this, I turned up having really beyond the title and the vague concept, no idea whatsoever what it was going to be. Um, and that kind of continued throughout the play because it starts off, it's a, it's a two-hander. It starts off with um, Pinter and Beckett sitting on the stage together uh, waiting to go into bat and you think oh well the play is surely going to end when one of them goes into bat or before either of them go into bat and then unfolds this kind of weird kind of um, narrative around them trying to get home at the end of the game as you say in the kind of trials and tribulations and ending up on Adelstrop train station kind of trying to work out whether the train station's been decommissioned or not and whether a train's ever, ever going to come um, but to go back to your original question, I did enjoy it. I didn't. I enjoyed it on two levels. One of which is that I, um, there was a lot to relate to when it came to the experience of playing kind of amateur level, you know, club village club 
cricket um, and the other level was on uh, was the level of um, the literary the amount of literary references that are built into it not only Beckett and Pinter references but particularly Shakespeare and kind of broader um, uh, broader uh, English literature including uh, I remember Adlestrop which becomes a kind of recurring theme in the in the play as well I did wonder whether if you didn't necessarily I mean if you don't like cricket presumably you wouldn't go Mm-mm. but if you didn't have that level of kind of reference touch point when it came to the literary side of things how far would one have enjoyed it do you think well I, I think it, it takes a rare playwright to have done the two doesn't it because mm. I, I think you could imagine a playwright who thought oh this is a fun concept and they'd get the literature right and then not the cricket and I think because Dutter is clearly a big cricket fan and player as you say, the cricket stuff, the wait, the rituals of waiting, the um, recounting stories after the game is all really mm. plausible. I, I, I think if you had no knowledge of Pinter or Beckett, it probably would be a bit of a struggle. Um, I'm, I'm going to drag you down with me on this and say that I mm. think I, I, my knowledge is pretty middling, to be honest. Like I've seen some, several of the big Becketts and several of the big Pinters, but long way from being an expert. And I'm conscious so. that... Um, the Dumb Waiter, which is uh, a pin to play that I think uh, Stump takes quite a lot from, I haven't seen. Nor and and there, was, there was this lovely thing in the theatre where you got different responses. So there were certain lines which were, you know, everyone got, everyone laughed, some that got a few laughs. And there was the odd line that I think just got like a single laugh where presumably... Um, well, either someone had a strange sense of humour or the reference was so niche. That it or was only or the third option is that it kind of becomes the, you know, you kind of make yourself look intelligent by laughing yes. at a line <laughs> that you go, I get the reference there and there is no reference, but no one else knows that there's no reference in there and you somehow manage to kind of game of one-upmanship with your, um, with your, with, with your neighbours in the, um, in the theatre. <laughs> Well, yes, it's true, isn't it? Yes, it does get competitive. I think um, the the other side of it that I guess, there's both the references, there's also the knowledge of the characters. So the interesting thing is that Dutter knew Pinter, Mm -hmm. as in they they, they played together. He obviously didn't know know Beckett. Um, But I have read elsewhere, and I'm sort of relying on others' take on this, that the portrayals were sort of very, very plausible. Um, And they certainly make a kind of enjoyable... It's that classic, um, maybe more in film actually than in theatre, but that classic odd couple dynamic, isn't it? The sort of um, confident, slightly swaggering Pinter and the slightly neurotic Beckett. Um, Um, And while they may have been true to Beckett and Pinter, the other thing that is remarkable is that they they become the kind of everyman figures on the boundaries of, and then the pavilions of of village cricket. And, you know, the whole kind of skit about... um, about you know kind of superstition and not wanting to pad up too early or you know the next person in wanting the person in after them to have been padded up otherwise it's bad luck for when they go in and you know making the cup of tea and all of that kind of stuff is all it all felt very true and so it didn't just feel like a depiction of two people we didn't know and two quite because I've often kind of wondered to myself if you ended up for some reason, you know, when I write my magnum opus and I'm therefore, you know, invited to go and join the gaieties for a cricket match, I'd always imagined that you'd kind of look around and it would be nothing like a usual village game, that suddenly you'd actually end up amongst all of these highfalutin individuals. But what this, what really struck me out of this is that suddenly 
and this sounds like an enormous cliche, but suddenly the act of playing cricket together becomes a great leveler because mm-hmm. however genius you are and however no- many Nobel Prizes you've won, you're still nervous about going into bat and that still demonstrates itself in the same ways as it demonstrates itself for you know for all of us. I think what came across brilliantly on, on your point of it as a leveller is we, we all know and we've all got to a stage in life where we play in games that we know fundamentally don't matter but you still go into bat you know fairly anxious about the whole thing it very much does matter to you and what's extraordinary is you have a Nobel Prize laureate in Beckett and I don't know actually if Pinter won a Nobel Prize possibly I'm not sure um a, you know very recognised playwright all the same um who are anxious about whether they're going to score any runs in a casual village game and, yeah. and the, the, that sort of how, how, how you know the, the way the two of them go together um Shamit Dutta has wrote a really nice piece in the 40th issue of the Night Watchman about the process of writing the play. And um, w- one line that struck me that I think is helpful for understanding the play is he wrote it in lockdown, and obviously lockdown did strange things to lots of people's minds. And in Dutta's word, the play ends up resembling an anxiety dream formed in the merged minds of Beckett and Pinter and filtered through my own. And I think when you were saying earlier, giving some of the synopsis, the anxiety dream bit really comes out after the game mm. doesn't it the, the, mm. this the, this sort of weird odyssey that i certainly hadn't expected then then starts to um unfold because the third character the third kind of major character the unseen character is the, the character of doggo and doggo is the um fellow player who is um on on their side or on the opposition side on their side on their side on yes. their side who is going to give them a lift home and they're initially trying to work out oh, which one of them you know someone said that doggo could give us a lift home and they're sort of just concerned about getting home but then it becomes this thing of oh one of them's run them run doggo out and so doggo becomes this kind of um, gathers steam as being this kind of existential you know ex- existential figure that then haunts them throughout the rest of the throughout the rest of the um, play, which again feels like something that has this sort of grain in, grain of truth in it on a couple of levels, one of which is we've all been in that situation where you turn up and there's a kind of ringer in the team and you're not quite sure who they are and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but then also, as you say, this... Um, and it's interesting to hear that that quote from Dutta about the, um, you know, the anxiety dream formed by the merged minds and, and filtered through his own because you do suddenly this kind of... Um, the play morphs from being something that we all know and love and are quite comfortable with in the pastoral English village scene to, as I say, this kind of weird scene on Adelstrop train station. And you're not quite sure. It's never entirely clear how we got there, mm-hmm. but it always seems inevitable that we are going to end up there somehow. And that's one of the kind of geniuses of it. It's not as if it's sort of the, the switch flips and then we're in this in this different state it kind of it's this and that's what makes it sort of terrifying in a way and i agree and it, it is and it's surreal and it's unsettling and i think that's why i think we the play deserves the credit of being a very fine play in and of itself it's mm. it's easy to think of it as and it is packed with references you know it's easy to think of it as um i guess a tribute but actually it takes good writing in and of itself to create those scenes and it, and it certainly does that um and i think it is a very is, is a very tight 70 minutes as well as someone as someone who has whinged a lot about going to plays that are you know near three hours when they really don't need to be um you know 
some plays obviously should be three hours but um in this case this was a 70 minute play that you know very packed i, rem- I remember every... looking at my watch thinking oh, we're about 15 minutes in and it was kind of the end um mm. it was yeah extraordinarily well paced the other thing just briefly the set very cleverly oh, yes. done yes when uh so they have a i i always like sets where this was not big budget it was just ingenious um and at the back of the stage in the first act you had this mini pavilion and when someone wanted to get a cup of tea they sort of opened the pavilion like, it was like a, doll's a doll's house, house. it was a doll's house it. yeah it was rather wonderful um and then later we had uh we had a tree and we had of course adults drop station and i just thought it was really really sort of beautifully and, and cleverly done so that is um stumped uh we're not sure it's showing anywhere at the moment so it's been on at bath it's been on at Hampstead, and i think at the moment you can still watch it online um yes because it was filmed during lockdown yes um so you can still watch it in online and we would heartily recommend that if you can get in front of a, a live performance at some point um that you uh that you that you head along uh, it's it's certainly worth a worth a watch um and that was the 166th episode of uh reverse rep radio the rain is probably falling at old trafford um who knows what's going to happen there who knows what's going to happen at the oval i reckon the oval will happen before we before we record again so um join us for episode uh, 167 of reverse rep radio where we won't talk about the ashes at all we hope that we'll record, you know, the next episode before the start of the next Ashes series, at least. You know, give give us some credit. <laughs>